0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 51, Corpus Christi, New Feast Day, New Plays. Last time, some of the church festivals from the medieval period gave us an idea of how the church allowed some licence and misbehaviour amongst the clerics and the general population, building on long traditions that stretched back into pagan times. And then we got to the point in the late 12th and early 13th century when the short plays that were part of the tropes in the church service had got longer and more elaborate and attracted the ire of church leaders. In response to this, a big change was around the corner. But to start with, it was a church event that prompted that change. In the development of theatre in Europe, this is a big moment. In essence, it's when the style of theatre moves from the Romanesque to becoming gothic. Although the content of the Roman theatre was very different from the church theatre of praise and thanksgiving, there were many similarities. The tropes were essentially a form of religious mime and pantomime. The theatre was dumb show, performed to music and song or chanted words, so not so different from mime and pantomime in the later Roman period, and the performance was designed to fit into a church, which at the time was in most cases a Romanesque building, with its central space that could be used for performance owing much to the Romanesque basilica. The theatre of the trope had developed a language to the mimed movements, as had happened in Rome, and much meaning could be conveyed by a good performer, especially where familiar stories were being retold. But the expansion of the trope that I discussed last time is suggestive of the urge for more to be done in the dramatic form, and I would guess that this included the urge for the actors to speak rather than relying on the sung or chanted Latin texts and silent movements. In the texts we have, there's occasional use of the vernacular, typically Old French, that was in use in the courts and in the geographical areas of what were to become France and the United Kingdom. After William's invasion of England in 1066, his descendants ruled over England and large parts of continental French lands, so French dominated in the upper classes of society, and it wasn't until about a century later that the division between Norman and English families began to change and become a new English in its own right. But the changes that resulted in increased use of the vernacular didn't just come from that change. Within the Frankish lands, there was a division between northern and southern, with the northerners being seen as more staid and traditional, and the southerners, particularly those from Provence, being more flamboyant and experimental. It is from there that literary forms from the Latin South became merged with the traditions of epic storytelling from the northern regions. Provence was very much at the crossroads of the different traditions within Western Christianity, and the Provençal style that developed retold the old epic stories from antiquity in the modern tongue of the day and updated them to Christianize them and make them relevant to the concerns of the time, and particularly to glorify the Church in support of the Crusades against the rise of Islam in the East, which was a palpable threat to Jerusalem and other holy sites. The expansion of more accessible literature also included biblical stories and the lives of the saints. All of these retellings, even the biblical ones, referenced the growing culture of chivalry, with its emphasis on platonic and unobtainable love and the benefits of physical suffering. That, of course, had its ultimate manifestation in the suffering of Christ on the cross, and that was, in theological terms, an expression of his love for all of mankind, and part of his eternal struggle with the devil to provide an escape from the horrors of eternal life in hell for all men. The suffering of Christ on the cross has not been the focal point of the Easter tropes which were focused on the resurrection, but with this new form of literature, which combines the romantic ideal with the Christian ethic, the focus in the popular mindset shifted to the crucifixion and from there to the suffering of Christ and his most pious followers, the martyred saints. That shift also becomes reflected in the plays that appear and are one of the ways that the stories become more accessible to the wider population. In the written forms, prose and poetry, they were available to more people than before, but the literate population was still only a very small percentage of the total. Through the 12th century, the poetic versions of these works were turned into prose and translated. New works in the local vernacular were created across Europe, and those who couldn't read had the chance to hear them recited by travelling minstrels. There was a tension between those who believed that the stories should still be biblical, or at least religious in tone, and those who were happy to write and hear stories of chivalric love, chaste maidens and comic low characters. Suppressing such tales wasn't possible, but the biblical versions also learned and utilised the style. Now the Bible story could be presented as the greatest and by implication the truest epic tale from the creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus to the day of judgment and the eternal fight with the devil. This was the literary landscape against which the new drama emerged. In 1215 the church amended its doctrine to put the focus of the mass onto the moment of transubstantiation, the moment when the bread and wine changes into the body and blood of Christ this moment was given miraculous importance to be revered with the virgin birth and the resurrection. The church needed a way to promote this doctrine and disseminate it amongst all of its followers. The documents issued by the Pope could be fed down to bishops fairly easily, but conveying a big change to local clergy was not so easy, especially as the doctrine was a fundamental change. It brought new emphasis on the human side of Christ's nature, and more was needed than relying on the sermon from the pulpit. It was 50 years after the new doctrine was first adopted when Pope Urban IV approved a new feast day to celebrate it with the aim of raising its profile amongst the faithful. In 1264, he announced that the feast day of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, would be adopted. The day in question was to be the first Thursday after Trinity Sunday, which is the first Sunday after Pentecost. By way of justification for this choice, he pointed out that the celebration most properly belonged on Good Friday, when Christ initiated the sacrament that the intention was that the feast should be celebratory, and that did not fit in with the solemnity of the Easter period, and could detract from the joyous celebration of the resurrection. There was, he said, already much to contemplate in the Easter period, and the Corpus Christi feast deserved space for itself. It's not possible to track the date of the very earliest plays, but it's likely that they were included in the feast day celebrations almost as soon as it was established. To leap forward for a moment, you may be wondering what happened to this feast day, which, unless you're Catholic, you may be unfamiliar with. Since the Reformation, one of the key differences between Catholic and Protestant has been the acceptance of the doctrine of transubstantiation. In England, Henry VIII suppressed the doctrine and the official feast day in 1548. In a pattern that I've mentioned before, Mary reinstated it in 1553, and it was suppressed again, this time permanently, by Elizabeth in 1558. Similar repression happened in Protestant Europe, but it remains an important Catholic feast day and is still celebrated with enthusiasm. Unusually, this feast day doesn't commemorate a particular historic event or person. Its purpose is to give thanks to the salvation of man through the decision of God to become man and enable the forgiveness of original sin through the death of his son. The connection of Adam's fall by the intervention of the devil to the death of Christ and the expectation of his second coming in the last days of the world is quite explicit. This complex and all-encompassing doctrine is fundamental to an understanding of the plays that developed as part of the Corpus Christi festival. I think it's safe to say that the medieval understanding of time was different from our own. Where we can now log every passing nanosecond and like to attach time and place to events with ferocious accuracy, medieval man perceived the past in a condensed form, with less idea of the time passed between events. But the linking of Adam, Christ, Lucifer and the end times is more than just a lack of perception of real time. It actually takes time out of the question and shows the concept of God's plan for mankind as outside of perceived time. It's a form of expression of the omnipotence and omnipresence of God, and as we shall see, it is featured without comment in the plays. The fact that the plays that were presented as part of the Corpus Christi festival were in the vernacular is not to suggest that they were becoming secular. As I've already noted, the vernacular was already becoming used more for storytelling, including religious storytelling, and as a new festival which was intended to be celebratory and joyous in nature – The decision to allow plays in the vernacular is perhaps not surprising. But they were still most certainly religious in nature, promoting a doctrine of how the fall leads to redemption and redemption affects the final judgment, all through the grace of God. It was a cyclical form that's evident from the earliest plays and perhaps it's a coincidence, but it bears a strong resemblance to the beginning, middle and end that Aristotle suggested many centuries earlier as a solid structure for drama. Although representation of the crucifixion itself had never been attempted in the tropes, it was a focal point of the new festival and had to be included. The events leading up to the crucifixion and its aftermath became the middle point of the cycle, where the dramatic elements of the trope covering the resurrection could be copied, adapted and incorporated. The tropes had also already developed some means of identification of character and place that could also be reused in this new vernacular play, in the form of the basic props and costume. Where there were no pre-existing dramas for particular biblical episodes, the relevant passages had to be translated into the vernacular and then dialogue and action scripted, sticking in most cases close to the biblical original. The biggest change from the trope was that the actors had to take on speaking dialogue and acting to the story rather than to music or chant. How, the question was, to portray these real and revered characters from history, now that they were outside of the ritualistic framework and setting that the church had provided. The solution tied in with the concept of time or rather the concept of timeless time. All characters were simply portrayed as modern men of the time, men of the 14th century. The Jewish leaders keen on convicting Christ could be portrayed as European bishops. The shepherds of Bethlehem could have the characteristics of shepherds in the heart of England or in the Alps. Pontius Pilate could be styled as a senior visiting magistrate on the king's business. So the plays could be located and be familiar without losing the impact of their religious message, because the concept of time, and to an extent the concept of place, was next to irrelevant in the context of God's overall plan, and there was little concern for realism. If it's accepted that God's plan applies to all times, to all places, and to all men, then what seems jarring to us causes no issues for medieval man. The collapsing of the structure of time also aids the concept of the Old Testament prefiguring the New Testament, and even on a character by character and event by event level, parallels can be drawn. The Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden prefigures the cross, just as Adam prefigures Christ. The Great Flood prefigures the end of days, and Adam and Noah can swear by Jesus without any incongruity. And, all of a sudden, I feel like I could be talking about a modern long-form TV show that plays with timelines and concepts of reality, not a play from some 700 years ago. There is a small digression that's too irresistible to avoid. The omnipresence of God, and relative lack of importance of setting, even the epic style of the narrative, gives the medieval playwright license to represent the world on the stage. Representing a journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem or across the flooded world or from Egypt to the promised land was not an issue. Realism wasn't required as all men were actors on God's stage where he was always present. So if one moment we were in place A and the next moment in place B and the next in place well Z, well that's not a problem. The journey of Judas from taking the bribe of the Pharisees to the Garden of Gethsemane could be shown by a simple move across the playing area. If there was any potential for doubt, the dialogue could be used to explain what was going on. An angel or a devil could appear on stage as easily as they could in the real world, as was the commonly held belief amongst most of the audience. The idea that God and the devil were constantly watching man's actions on the stage of the world was a familiar concept even before these plays were produced. Since St Augustine, the concept of man as actors on God's stage had been used often. So there was no great leap to accept that this microcosm of the stage reflected the macrocosm of the world. And from that point, we can travel forward to the idea of the Globe Theatre in Elizabethan London and others that took on similarly grand names being a stage on which we can imagine foreign lands, whole armies, and events across the real or imagined worlds. It's possible to argue that the freedoms found by Shakespeare, Marlowe, Johnson and others started here with the Corpus Christi plays. Records of exactly when the plays were introduced as part of the new feast day are regrettably rare and uncertain. The purges of the Reformation took out swathes of Catholic records in England, and the religious wars in Europe and similar reforming zeal had a similar effect on the continent. However, the ecclesiastical record suggests that the feast was enthusiastically adopted within a few years of its official promulgation by Pope Clement V in 1311. Also, and again unusually, the manner in which the feast was to be celebrated was left very much to local discretion. The only obligation was that the consecrated bread was to be processed from the cathedral to local churches, so there was plenty of scope to allow local interested parties to decide on the form of the procession and any associated activities. With the church service done, the day could then be devoted to entertainments and related celebration, and as far as we can tell, the enactment of the Passion of Christ was included very early in the development of the feast day. That was soon expanded to include other plays that attempted to tell the story of God's plan from the creation onwards. That expansion drove a requirement for more involvement from the local community and the trades guilds became participants in the processions and then the plays. The trades guilds had developed through the end of the previous century as trade and manufacturing had begun to play a more and more important role in the wealth of society. This was particularly true in England, the Low Countries and Germany, who were fast becoming great trading nations. Members of the guilds would march behind the clergy who carried the elevated sacramental goods, often in an ornate casket or specially designed container to show off the focus of the day. They processed wearing their liveried coats and carrying banners depicting the tools and output of their trades. The 14th century was one of the greatest periods of socio-political change in Europe throughout the history of the continent. For the first time, wealth could be judged in terms of earnings through trade and manufacture as much as by land ownership, which was the source of wealth for every other preceding period. A life could be prosperously led in a town or city without direct affiliation or obligation to a feudal lord. Subsistence living was still the main occupation for the populace, but the development of economies that would become based on trade and commerce rather than the productivity of the land had begun. The Black Death also left its mark on the second half of the 1300s, disrupting tradition and amongst the decimation of the populations, leaving a space for new innovations and possibilities for the survivors. The Corpus Christi festival found a niche as an urban celebration, where the procession from the cathedral to the parish churches sought to unite a diocese. But the gathered tradesmen of their guilds also came from the locality and neighbouring diocese, as the bonds of their trade guild became stronger than those of their home parish. The creation of plays to convey the message of the festival was therefore as much a civic event as it was a church event. It probably goes too far to suggest that it was secular as opposed to religious, but the influence of the trade guilds as supporters and presenters of the plays certainly gives a secular nuance to the plays that was never seen in the tropes or the dramatised sermon of the previous centuries. It's notable that the Corpus Christi plays are referred to as ludi and not as anything with more officially religious connotations. Whereas the involvement of trade skills and wealthy merchants was most notable in England and in the German-speaking parts of continental Europe, In Spain and Italy, the formation of charitable organisations to present the plays was more common, and in France, typically special guilds were formed for the same purpose. However, even this patchwork is probably too simplistic. Civic authorities were often as keen to be seen to be involved with the celebrations as the trades guilds were, so mayors and other town officials would try to mark their presence on the plays, and some at least provided funds or practical support from municipal coffers. In Italy, by the 15th century, there is even some evidence that the aristocracy had become involved. We can only assume that there was a lot of management by committee, and local politicking would not have been uncommon. At their zenith, the full cycles in the extreme ran up to 25 days of presentations. We see this in the cycle from Valenciennes in France in 1547, and could use hundreds of actors. Organisation for such events must have involved a combination of the municipal authority, the permissions of the church, and the dedication of a large number of very committed actors. And a word of caution here. We only have detailed records of Corpus Christi plays from a small selection of towns across Europe, but references to many more without any further information, so we know they were a widespread practice. But also that there was diversity in the preparation and presentation allowed, so there is quite a level of assumption that the plays we have are representative of the entire genre. It is the same issue we have here with the generalisations we make about Greek and Roman theatre, based on a few surviving examples, but perhaps more acute. With the Greeks and the Romans, we are confident that the social and religious structures that were the basis for the plays were very consistent, and what we have probably is a good representation of styles and methodologies of the time. But the fact that the guilds took over a lot of the presentation of the medieval plays, and the church released a lot of control, means that there is potentially more chance for diversity in this case. This is just a reminder that we can only talk about the specifics we have and speculate on what that might say about the many lost plays. So we have the break with the church, where the plays are performed in the market square, a courtyard or other suitable space as local conditions dictated and not in the church. The actors are now local people, who are quite often local tradesmen associated with the guild. The plays are presented in the local vernacular, not Latin. The impact of the role of the trade skills should not be underestimated. They may have been a relatively new phenomenon, but they were very effective at promoting their crafts, supporting their members and promoting their interests. There was also an inherent rivalry between them and a desire to show off their abilities and wealth within the activities of the feast day. The larger towns could call on greater resources and there was a disparity between productions made in a village, parish and those made in larger towns. It was natural for shepherds to take on the nativity story, the company of goldsmiths to take on the part of the play where the magi arrived and presented luxurious gifts, or for the shipwrights to present the story of Noah and the great flood, and for each of these groups to think of diverse ways to show off their trade to the best effect. In some cases, the responsibility for producing the plays was taken on by a religious guild. At Lincoln, for example, the Guild of St Mary, the patron saint of the cathedral, produced the plays and in Cornwall, the same role was taken by the monks of Penrith. In each case, it seems that these responsibilities were decided locally and responded to local needs and resources. The same can be said of performance spaces, which ranged from natural amphitheatre to market squares, courtyards of inns, and even mobile stages on wagons pulled from site to site within a town and the effect of this was that the places that created drama moved from the religious centres of the early centuries to the mercantile centres of 13th and 14th century Europe. By this time, places associated with plays are Coventry, Frankfurt, Florence, Valencia and the like, not Winchester, Limoges or Saint-Gaul. Now, we no longer have the uniformity of the tropes and the dominance of the clergy as performers, but see collaborations between the guilds and the clergy to mutual benefit and it was a collaboration that took advantage of, and was made possible by, the freedoms given to local church leaders in the celebration of Corpus Christi. But this didn't mean that just anything could be produced. The church still controlled the subject matter and the script. Indeed, we can say that there are two types of play. Ones where the production was still fully controlled by the clergy, who had assistance from the laity and the guilds, and those where the clergy simply provided the script and then handed off all other responsibilities. Whatever the case, we can also assume that the church retained some oversight over the script, perhaps checking the latest version for biblical accuracy and potential heresy. The general pattern seems to have been that the author or authors would produce the script and scribes would then copy out required numbers of copies for individual parts for the actors. The original would be notated as rehearsal progressed and became in effect the prompt book for the production. In England, this version was known as the original, or the register. This would then be updated and augmented in subsequent years, with passages being dropped or added as fashions dictated. The versions we have preserved tend to be late versions, copied in the Tudor period, so generally we can't see how the plays developed year by year, but just have a finished product from the last time the play was produced. The author, or authors, use tricks that are already familiar to us. The calling in of a rowdy holiday crowd that would not have been out of place in Plautus's Rome and rhetorical styles borrowed from the preacher are good examples. Music also features in most plays, with spaces left for appropriate hymn singing or recitation of psalms. The communal singing of the Te Deum at the end of the cycle is often retained as a final song in plays of God. It's often said that we can't ascribe authorship to the plays, but that's not strictly true. Many are anonymous, but occasionally we have the name of an author, and on even fewer occasions some idea of their day job, often as a monk or other clergy, but legal scribes and even a couple of court officials are mentioned. It's tempting to think of the plays as subliterary and created by religious types who were more concerned by the message than the language, but this is unfair. There are moments of heightened poetry, and the list I just mentioned suggests that some people skilled in the use of language were involved. Safe to assume there were no flies on legal scribes or court officials. We shouldn't forget that Chaucer, writing in the late 1300s, was a civil servant in modern terms. The author of the Wakefield play cycle is referred to as the Wakefield master and with good reason. In that case, he was a 16th century reviser of earlier plays which were probably developed in York, but he's highly thought of for his wit, his satire and his use of metre and rhyme. It would be fascinating to know his biographical details and his relationship with the creators of the earlier York plays, but, unfortunately, the passing of time has denied this to us. As I've mentioned, in times the plays developed into longer play cycles, and performances could be stretched over days either side of the Corpus Christi festival. The aforementioned Wakefield cycle, for example, is constructed of 32 individual plays. So we shouldn't be surprised that the plays and the cycles that they became have multiple authorship, which on some occasions we can detect and analyse, but at other times it's difficult to draw any such distinctions with any certainty. So let's throw out any notion that these are simple plays put together by local and ill-educated clergy and be more concerned with the effect of the entire cycles particularly later in the medieval period, we are dealing with plays that were well thought through and developed over years of experience of presentation. The actors would have had input to the updating of the plays depending on audience reaction and the experience of performing, and the authors would have gained similar experience. It's great where we have the prompt book version of the play from which we can get ideas about staging, props and costume but this still only gives us a snapshot of how the plays were developed in performance. Just as we shouldn't assume that authors were not very skilled, we should also remember that the actors may have not been literate at all. Some, maybe many, would have been illiterate, which would have meant learning a part by instruction from a literate fellow actor or other instructor, reading the part and repeating the lines until learned. The were in rhyme and alliteration is used a lot, all of which helps with the learning of lines, but still quite a feat for actors playing in a complete cycle and therefore learning multiple parts. For the larger scale productions, other skill sets were also required. Whatever the location, some form of management would have been needed. Concepts such as crowd control, building regulations, concern for law and order, the protection of buildings and monuments are not new to the occasions where large crowds will be gathering. Where were actors and backstage staff to be housed for the duration of the festival? What and where should they eat? What dignitaries or VIPs would attend and how would they be greeted and seated? And in time, the question of financing comes to the fore. Someone has to be responsible for monitoring of costs the collection, the safekeeping and eventual fair distribution of funds. Again, there was no one answer to how these and many other issues were addressed, as almost all were worked out on a local, festival-by-festival basis, and worked within local standards and expectations. What is clear, that roles that we would recognise as producer, accountant, director and stage manager were required as soon as the plays reached any sort of scale. Once those roles were defined, we have examples of formal contracts being adopted with the organisers of the festival to define roles and responsibilities. This was getting serious, and we could say, professional. The development of the Corpus Christi play into the play cycle took time, through the 13th and 1400s, but once it did, it quickly developed into a well-liked tradition marking the new feast day. The plays became works of art with their own set of internal rules to which they remained consistent. They were structurally similar to a Greek tragedy and prefigured the rules of the Elizabethan stage, but they were epic and episodic in style, and their adherence to the doctrinal message of the Bible made them, quite literally, timeless, which is a feature that makes the medieval play a very distinctive form of drama. They may have had to be traditional and compliant in their scripts and performance detail, but a whole world of creation happened around the way they were produced, presented and monetized. For the people of the day this was a new form of theatre that became a high point of the calendar of the year and we see the first signs of professional roles in the production of theatre in the medieval period. Next time I'll be looking into how the plays were rehearsed and some of the organisational elements that were needed. Once the plays expanded and required not only commitment from actors and backstage staff but upfront financial guarantees, questions like how they would be publicised and how a successful performance could be guaranteed became important. This is still not full-blown commercial theatre, but the concerns of the commercial theatre are beginning to be felt. And while you wait for that, please find us on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon and the World Wide Web. Just search for THOETP and join us in whichever way suits you best for more theatre and history. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email on THOETP at gmail.com or via Twitter at THOETP.